Now, as an introduction to our next guest, we have a, a short clip of about uh, two minutes, which we are going to play for you now, and we'll talk about it afterwards. A very warm word of welcome as we continue our Out and About and Spiritual Reflection series. And today we're at Kappa Ban Masrock, which is in the parish of Scariff, which is in the Inish Caltra pastoral area. Six parishes adjacent to Loch Derg, looking across on the Shannon and Killaloo itself. And we continue our series of looking at some of the ancient mass rocks in this area. Recently, we reflected on one in Bodike, another one in Fecal, and another one in Tulla. And here we are today at Kappa Ban. And it shows or demonstrates the great faith tradition that we have, not only in this part of East Clare, but right throughout the country. The love that people have of the Eucharist at difficult times. And in this time of post-pandemic, as we return to the Eucharist, we pray for an increased sense of devotion to that, just like the ancient Irish people had in these sacred locations. I love the Anima Christi prayer, the beautiful Eucharistic prayer that runs, Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, fill my veins. Water flowing from side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within your wounds, hide me. Suffer me not to be separated from thee. From the malignant enemy, defend me. The hour of my death, call me. And bid me come to thee, thy saints, and may praise thee forever and ever. Amen. Saint Cayman of Inish Caltra, pray for us. Saint Flannan of Killaloo, pray for us today and always. Amen. Now you may recognise the voice of our interviewee after listening to that beautiful uh, clip there. Uh, he's going to tell us more about that in a minute. Uh, but he, he is a man who was ordained as a priest in uh, 1991 and since then has had a very uh, busy life uh, being appointed recently as Bishop of Killaloo in 2016. So we're delighted to welcome to the programme Bishop Finton Monan. Bishop, you're very welcome. Thank you, Dara. So delighted to be with you here in Scariff, uh, Scariff Bay Community Radio. Great facility and uh, God bless all the good work that you do there. And it's not your first time in Scariff either, is it? Oh, no, indeed. <laughs> uh, we've been here many times for confirmation and other times we're doing a little video on the Scariff Martyrs and uh, visiting the, the beautiful uh, area down by the harbour and, and, and that type of thing. And here for a number of funerals and, yeah, uh, and yeah, that as yeah. well. So I've been here many times. So before we get into detail about uh, in the interview, uh, just tell us about that beautiful clip. What was that about? Well, it's a series of clips uh, uh, from um, a playlist that I do on YouTube called Out and About Series. And it's one of about 610 that I've done at this stage that started way back at the start of the pandemic when people couldn't uh, interact normally in, ter in church terms. And like so many other people got into doing little small clips to communicate a message. And some of the time there were, you know, spiritual messages. Other times there were, um, a, you know, I suppose trying to display the beauty of a particular area or something like that. And then in the season of Advent, um, it would be a series of spiritual reflections leading up to Christmas and, and, and Lent for, for Easter and all of that. So that was one of a series that I've, I've done in, you know, in the Diocese of Killaloo, five counties. 
and it, there's an amazing big area to cover too isn't it huge yeah. area yeah. an area of about 120 miles from loop head right across mm. to it the, the sleeve blooms uh, and covers five counties and there's so many uh, beautiful spots in in terms of the nature and also in the ecclesiastical heritage that is there uh, and to be able to communicate and share a, a lot of that and one of the really interesting things is the series of mass rocks which go back to the penal times there is a feast day in the middle of june that celebrates the 19 irish martyrs that died in the 1700s and that was a difficult time in faith the time when people couldn't practice their faith when it was banned and legal to do so and they would have fled to places remote places generally up on a hill where they could keep an eye out and a mass rock would have been established and the eucharist was celebrated there uh, and that was a series on, on that. That was one of them in Capaban, which is in a really beautiful spot in, in Scarif. And I believe you have an annual mass there every year commemorating uh, that aspect, the treasure of our faith and love for the Eucharist. So where does the Bishop Finton Monaghan's story begin? Where did you grow up? I, I grew up and born in Tullamore in County Offaly and uh, lived there for until I was going to secondary school and both my mum and dad then were natives of Galway. My mother, Castlegar, my dad, uh, Balnakil, famous Balnakil Kelly Band. That's right, yes, yeah, yeah. Indeed, and we moved down at the time to a place called Anhyarua, which is in South Connemara. Um, my dad was appointed um, principal of the Skullcumshi or Ciaran there, having been principal in, in the Art School Ciaran in, Car- in Clara in County Offaly. So went to secondary school there and then went to Maynooth and was ordained in 1991 and then spent one year back in Connemara as a curate in Ballinahown, uh, uh, which is where T.G. Cahar is. Uh, and then was appointed to St. Charles College and for the following 23 years full-time teaching and uh, being chaplain there and then became diocesan secretary for the last 12 years or so uh, of that tenure and then in 2016 was appointed to, as Bishop of Killaloo and have been here for the last seven years. Yes, and we'll, we'll get to that to, to your experience as a, as a bishop uh, later on but going back to when you were ordained in 1991, June the 16th, is that right? Um what was that like for you? You must have been absolutely thrilled with yourself, first of all, to get to that stage. Well, sure. I, I suppose even in, in, in terms of when I was leaving school, just like yourself, having done leaving cert, I wasn't sure what I wanted yeah, to do, really. Yeah, yeah. And a number of things were at the back of my mind. Uh, I love sport and would have liked to have been a PE teacher. Uh, I was very interested in construction and would have liked to have done civil engineering, too, and electronics and all of that. And science was a huge interest uh, of mine. Um, but uh, I also had this sense of a call uh, to vocation uh, and a sense of being magnetised towards that. It always had a, a, you know, a reasonable faith, I think. That and can I, I, sorry, Bishop, can I just ask, was your family very religious as well? Is that what maybe influenced you to go down the route as a priest? Well, I suppose no more religious than, than, than anybody else at yeah. the time. Yeah. Uh, I'd have caught a lot of my faith from my grandfather, I think, who was a, a, he was a farmer and a, he was a construction worker and he was also a caretaker in the local church. I used to be with him a lot of the time and uh, enjoying, uh, uh, you know, painting and cutting hedges and mowing lawns and all of that sort of thing and maintaining the church. And he was a very devout man, so I'd have seen that and been awfully impressed by that. And I'd been very impressed with some of the religious that were in the school and the parish where I was. 
our, our parish priest used to bring us to um, athletic events and I used to go fishing with him regularly. He was a great sportsman himself, a great hurler, a great footballer. And some of the religious sisters used to bring us to athletic events and all of that. So I'd have been profoundly influenced by them and their example and all of that. Uh, and all of that, along with, you know, a normal religious family faith upbringing, uh, would have developed that sense of faith. And uh, so I remember after leaving Cert to send to my dad, who was principal in the local school, um, you know, I've, I've got my CEO form filled up and it's civil engineering and I'd hoped to get that because I did a reasonable leaving Cert. But I also had that sense of vocation and his advice was, sure, give it a go. And if it doesn't work exactly. out, you can... Exactly, yeah. That yeah. was it. I yeah. never looked back since yeah. that. And yeah. I had um, seven or eight wonderful years in Manute doing a science degree first and then theology and then a master's in theology and then um, ordained in 1991 um, in in the beautiful spot that Anjahurua is in the heart of the Gaeltacht. And uh, yeah, it, it was um, it was an overwhelming experience in many ways because you're propelled from being a private individual that's just doing your own thing to being all of a sudden a public figure. And uh, at the time, being ordained was a huge thing, as was even still it would be in the secular age that we, we live in. But um, uh, it's that year then I was appointed to a Gaeltacht parish and absolutely loved that and full of enthusiasm and energy on in my mid-twenties. And would I be right in saying that area where you were, you, you went to first, uh, that was where you were born? Uh, it, it was, was yeah. just where, where I went to school. It was very okay. close to that, only 10 kilometres. Okay. And so it felt like home for you then, so? It sure did. Yeah. And, and even as a matter of fact, for the first six months, I was living from my home house uh, because the house that I, I, the parish house was being renovated. Mm-hmm. And it took quite some time to do that. So I'd have my lunch and stay over at nighttime and that kind of thing. And I was also doing the H-dip in, in, in university in Galway. So you go in in the afternoon and do your classes and you teach in the local school in the morning and you do your parish duties as well with funerals and weekend masses and all of that type of thing. Uh, and also playing a little bit of football and uh, basketball with the um, with the club that was there and that type of thing. So it was a very full, full sort of a schedule uh, for that year and most enjoyable. And I suppose you had to be fluent in the Australia too? Oh yeah, Kinsha, yeah, Vinyard uh, yeah. Gaelgagam. I was always interested in Irish uh, as both mum and dad were native Irish speakers and they enthusiastically spoke it as much as they possibly could and you could hear it spoken all the time in the shops and the school and everything in, in Ancaharua. Um, so tell us, tell us, tell me about um, your your experience. Um, you mentioned there about being in Ancaharua. Uh, where else did you go? I mean, did you travel abroad as, as a priest as well? Oh, very much so. Uh, when I was appointed to St. Charles College the following year, as a teacher, then you'd have, it was a boarding school. So once the school finished and the borders were gone, you'd basically have three months during the summer. So the normal arrangement, and the same with people going to St. Flannan's, uh, and some of the teachers there would have gone and ministered in, in the U.S., uh, so I used to go to a place called Seal Beach in California practically every summer for about 15 summers. Uh, and that was a great experience to see the American church and to get immersed into that. And at, after 10 years there, I knew as many people in, in uh, California as I would in Ireland and uh, uh, developed a sense of belonging and community. And I suppose there. you weren't the only Irish priest at the time to move to America because we know many priests within this county did the exact same as you. 
Oh, very much so. And, and even in the parish right next door to me, uh, Father Brendan Maloney, who would be uh, very much native of these parts, he used to be in the very next door parish and we used to meet every single week for a game of golf and uh, to go for a meal afterwards and uh, and have a drink or two, no doubt. <laughs> and uh, and that was always good fun. Yes. But uh, most of the priests in the diocesan colleges would have done that, you know, gone out there. And then apart from that, in, in each of the years uh, during the uh, training to be a priest, I'd have gone to America, worked there one summer in Washington, D.C., uh, worked in Rome, uh, in London, England. I was a deacon in a parish called Wilsdon Green in, in London, and there was a huge amount of Irish people there at the time. That was a great pastoral experience, linking in with the Irish abroad there. And uh, then would have had several trips abroad with, we'll say, Trokra, went there um, to Kenya one year, went to Malawi another year, and um, I went on a trip to Pakistan to visit a classmate who was a Columban out there. So various different experiences of travelling abroad um, for a prolonged period of time and shorter times as well. And is the teaching of the Catholic Church very different over there to here, or is it is it the same? Um, well, yeah, California is an interesting place because it, it's a, it's a very uh, much, a, no more than New York is, very much a mixture of people from all over America and all over the Different world. Different race as well too and everything, yeah. Totally, yeah. and you have a huge influx of people from Central America, we'll say a huge um, uh, Hispanic population and uh, the, the, the Mexican culture is huge there. Uh, and they'd have their own particular traditions. Yes. And also the Filipinos were, were huge there. Uh, and, and also Kore- the Korean church had a huge influence. And then you'd have some of the Native Americans that were there. And interestingly enough, you'd have very much a very strong right-wing or conservative approach, not only in politics, but also to church as well. So it is a right mixture of, we'll say, Irish and Hispanic and Korean and uh, Filipino and uh, conservative sort of Catholicism. You got everything thrown in together, really. And if you were studying to be a priest out in California, you'd have to be fluent in Spanish because there's more Spanish spoken in America than English, okay, actually. Okay, very interesting, yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. So all the ma- not all the masses, but some of the masses would be in, in Spanish. Um, so if I was to settle there, you'd, you'd, you'd have to make a serious effort, no more okay, than okay. living in the Gaeltacht, yeah, to yeah. pick up the language. So it was an interesting experience. Um, in terms of liturgy, it was very different in the sense that... Um, um, and Ireland has become like that now. Uh, at the time in Ireland, uh, a lot of people were kind of hanging on in the church because it was the social thing to do. Whereas in America, people had made a conscious decision to be there and they were 100% into it or not at all. So in terms of liturgy, uh, they'd all want to be doing the readings, they want to be bringing up the gifts, they'd want to be singing, singing their hearts out. And the front seats and the pews would be the first to be filled out in America. And people would meet and greet you after Mass and talk at length about the content of your homily which <laughs> was quite a shock yeah. and uh, the I have to say sorry as well the, the Americans particularly with their singing it's phenomenal what they do isn't it it's really really good really phenomenal and yeah. even for a daily mass I remember the first time I, I, I said mass there I had it all over in about 20 minutes and they were shocked because they were used to, <laughs> even for a daily mass, having a homily, singing right through, yeah. having prayers of the faithful, and then having the chat afterwards. And they go in for their uh, orange juice and donuts and coffee and all of that afterwards. And that was their sense of community. Very different so to here, isn't it? Yeah. Very different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and England would be much the same as well, where... Uh, that have the church would be their form of community whereas here in Ireland you know your neighbours and you'll meet you people in the street exactly. it, yeah, yeah. it's different yeah. you know yeah. 
yeah, yeah. So. Um, so tell me about your your appointment as Bishop of Killaloo in 2016. How did that come about? Um, it, interesting how it does. And, and often I'm speaking to young people that ask, uh, was this your ambition? Is this what you applied for? And in our job, it's funny, you, you don't do that sort of thing. You get appointed by a, a bishop, if you're a priest, to a particular parish, considering the needs of, of the diocese. And it's the very same with the appointment of, of a bishop as well. There is a, the Pope's representative in every country is called the Papal Nuncio. And his job is basically to have his ear to the ground and uh, to consult in diocese and to get uh, lists of names of people that might be suitable and he'd make different inquiries and that type of thing. He'd consult priests or lay people that are active in the diocese and that type of thing. And um, what he normally, uh, what happens in each province then, three names would be submitted periodically to Pope Francis that these three might be suitable for a particular diocese. And, and would uh, it be based on your experience or what would it be? It could be that. Um, I suppose you'd, you'd take the needs of different dioceses into account. For example, if you've uh, been appointed to RAFO, it wouldn't make sense if you weren't a fluent Irish speaker. Um, yes. it may, if you were going to be appointed to Down and Connor, you'd have to be very aware of the northern situation. And would it be fair to say age would be also a factor? True, true indeed. Um, it just had, for the previous few years before I was appointed, younger bishops uh, happened to be appointed. It used to be very much an, an elderly thing where you might be in your late 60s, mm. early 70s mm. even because our retirement age is 75. Okay. And and even in the old system, you wouldn't be made a PP until you're, you were in your mid-60s uh, because it was strictly based on seniority. But for the few years prior to my appointment, younger and younger people had been appointed in their 50s. And it so turned out I was only in my late 40s at the time. So I was the youngest uh, bishop at the, at the time. Um, so it came as a, as a total shock because, as I say, you don't apply for it. And having spent 23 years working in Toom, my ambition at the time was to return to Connemara, which I loved and would have loved to have been a parish priest there working in South Connemara and enjoying the beauty of nature yeah. around and fishing yeah. and, uh, and yeah. all of that and exploring the beauty of that area. But that wasn't to be. Uh, so it was uh, Charles Brown was the name of the papal nuncio at the time. And he met, and uh, I suppose his usual spiel is that Pope Francis has appointed you to the Diocese of Killaloo, and he wanted an answer there and then, and I said to him, this was too big a, a thing to be able to give you an answer straight away, uh, and I'd need to think about it for a while, and did so for a few days, and it was a difficult decision, because I was very happy where I was, and I had no ambition to go any further. Whereas other people would actually have loved to have moved on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, so some people naturally are they do. Yeah. ambitious, yeah. I suppose, really. And uh, but I, I certainly wouldn't have been ambitious at all. And, and I did want to stay where I was. You're and, easy, and, please. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I'd have the sense then, you know, that um, if you're asked to do something and if you believe that it is God's will exactly. uh, that yeah. you, you accept yeah. it uh, and, and, and if, if, if others believe that you have the capabilities of it, uh, and that's our sense of when you're uh, ordained um, a diocesan priest, you take two vows or two promises. One is the promise of obedience and the second is the promise of celibacy. And if you're a religious order priest, you also take the vow of poverty. But as a diocesan priest, you don't take that vow. It's just uh, obedience and uh, 
um, the, the uh, celibacy that you won't get married, that you'll remain single and give yourself 100% to the life of the church. So I, I believe in that in terms of if, if you're asked to do something and, and if it's reasonable, um, you know, g- give it your 100% and, and no turning back. And as a bishop, um, the day-to-day job, is it, is it much different to when you were a priest? Oh, oh, very much so, in the sense that if you're a priest, for example, if you take um, Father Joe here in Scarif, he'd be based in Scarif and Fecal and Kilinena, and uh, it's called the Inish Caltra pastoral area, and uh, he might uh, tip over to Mount Shannon and to Whitegate, and he might go over to Bodaik and that, and that would be his world, it'd be the pastoral area. Whereas as a bishop, then you're you're concerned two big things. Firstly, your diocese, and secondly, the Irish Episcopal Conference, of which you're a member of. So you'd have a national uh, input as well as your diocesan. So it's much broader remit. It wouldn't be as focused or as specific in the sense of doing funerals every day or weddings every day or uh, seeing Mass in a particular location. You could be in Kinnity one day and you might be in Carrigahold the next day and you might be in Six Mile Bridge the next day and it might be confirmation or it might be uh, meeting a pastoral council or it might be pastoral development or God only knows like the amount of things and an awful lot of it like in any job is administration and bureaucracy uh, but the vast majority of it is pastoral. And I love the out and about sense of it, yes, you yes. know, going out, meeting people and uh, especially young people because of my experience of school. I really enjoy meeting young people and uh, uh, get a great uh, enjoyment and sense of fulfillment. Out and of that. course, it's part of, the, part of your job as well. Would I be right in saying that, you know, when the time comes for certain priests to move on, would you be the person to appoint different priests to per, a particular area? Yeah, yeah, and that's one one of the really most challenging it is, uh, yes, parts yeah, of yeah, the job. Yeah, yeah. Partly because of the limited resources that are there, and even in the short time that I've come here to Killaloo, uh, we I have had to inform seventeen parishes that they'll no longer have a resident priest. Oh God, okay, and yeah. for a local yeah. small community, that's a huge thing. That their presbytery, uh, at which there was a light for hundreds of years, there'll no longer be somebody there. So that is a very difficult thing to have to communicate and communities rebel against it but what can you do we now have 27 parishes in the diocese with no resident priest and since I came 17 have so it's by far the most difficult thing to do and the process is there's an appointments board uh, there's a there are a group of people that are in the diocese are sort of a committee or a, a, a coordinating group and um, they help me make the decisions and they sit down and they look at the statistics of every single parish, the amount of baptisms, the amount of weddings, the amount of funerals, uh, and it's all done out there on a, on a sheet. You look at where the vacancies are, who's retiring and all of that, and you try and spread your resources as thinly as you possibly can in order to maximise the service that is there. And it, it, it invariably involves tough decisions in which somebody that might be 20 plus years in an area and they're very settled and you're going to have to say, will you exactly, go? Exactly, yes. So yeah. that, that is tough, uh, but it's, it's part and parcel. And, and we'll say, we're referring to, we'll say, places that have a, a lower population than others. Um, we'll say for the priest that gets appointed to that area, I mean, they have to cover a, a bigger area in comparison to a priest that has to cover only a small area. Sure. Like if you, if you take, for example, people often remark the number of priests that are in Ennis, 
But we'll say in Ennis, you could have three funerals in one day or even more. You could because, of course, again, the population is big there. Population yeah. is huge. Yeah. So in, in the urban areas, you have to have more of a concentration because it's just go, go, go. Um, and then the challenges in a, in a rural area would be getting from A to B. You might have to drive 20 miles to exactly. get to yes. your church. Yeah. So you have the wear and tear of that. Like And, um, uh, you know, huge swathes of the diocese are very unpopulated, and uh, which is a, a sad thing. Like if you take, I often take the example of Broadford that 100 years ago was hugely populated. Yes, that's and, right. Yes. You know, yeah. Kilimer was, uh, there were over a thousand people there back in West Clare. Now there are only a couple of hundred. So many of the beautiful rural areas, uh, Kilkee as a town has become almost decimated. And the Zupet Peninsula area. as well, beautiful parts of the county, but as you said, the population sure. is very low. Sure, sure, yeah. indeed. Yeah. And that creates its own challenges and its own sense of sadness because people are so much lamenting the, the breakdown of community and it's an effect not only in church but in GA or different community events and schools closing, which mm-hmm. is a there's a, a terrible sadness in that. And there's a quality of life in a rural area that you don't have in a, in, in, in a town where you may not know your neighbour at all, you know, that's a feature of rural life is that there's more of a sense of togetherness and the bond of community which sustains people as we saw so strongly during COVID. And you, you referenced there, I mean, you know, in recent years, as you said, um, there has been a lack of clergy in our parishes and uh, it, it comes as only just, would I be right in saying 10 seminarians studying to become Catholic priests in Manu College? Sure, it, it, I remember when we started as first years, there were something like 66 of us went in and then the following year there were 76 and then the decline started after that. So you'd have at least 40, 50 being ordained every single year. Now you'd do well if, if for the whole country there were less than a handful. Mm-hmm. So that is a, a major, major decline. Wow. And, uh, and can, I, can I, sorry, can I just stop you there? I mean, what is your perception on that? Why Why is it so... Why are we so short of priests here in this country? Well, it, it's very, it's, well, there's a number of reasons, I suppose, and, and all of them contribute to it. Um, uh, interest in religion wanes and gets stronger at different times. Uh, and if you look at it in the 2000 years of the church, there were some times where there was huge interest in religious orders, uh, monasticism, um, uh, the diocesan priesthood became strong. If you look at it, even in the 20th century in Ireland, you had times in the 50s, for example, there was a huge number of vocations. Things began to decline. Sometimes it might be the economic recession and people might turn to church. Um, so a lot of people would have expected during COVID that there might have been more of a sense of of uh, an increase in religion. There was to some degree. But um, secularism, which is, I suppose, a moving away in terms of and materialism, um, you know, that the people get interested in secular things rather than in the supernatural or the spiritual. Um, no doubt the scandals in the church that started in the 1990s, yes, yes, yeah. that would have had a huge uh, um, impact on, on the church and the handling of those by senior people in the church. So all of those things together uh, would contribute to it. But then on the other hand, then, there's a huge increase in the involvement of lay people, either in pastoral councils in an untrained way at local level. And we've also made an effort to train people, uh, 24 qualified after two years of intensive study in Mary Macla College in Limerick. 
and and they have come to the fore and that wouldn't have been a reality of the the church of the past they're not ordained ministers they're voluntary but they do fantastic work yes work. and I, I have seen that in my own parish in Tulla as well they've done great work Yes, and, and Tulla would be a great example of it. The two ladies that are there, yes. one trained in pastoral um, work and the other trained in catechesis. And Bernie, who's uh, working in the schools, would prepare the kids for First Holy That's Communion right. yes. and for Confirmation. And Carmel then would, she would say the prayers at the graveside. She'd uh, do different liturgies uh, at times of funeral if people were sick or anything like that. And they've been hugely well accepted and uh, they, they're doing fantastic work in so many pastoral areas around. And please God, we'll develop that a lot more. And uh, there's more of an interest in that, uh, absolutely, than specific or focused vocations to priesthood. Now, we have two um, great young men that have applied this year to start, uh, one from, from the area here uh, and another as well from um, He's from over in Roscray, which is part of the diocese. And we've one man who is a politician. He was a county councillor for Fianna Fáil, and he's going into a second year of preparation for, for priesthood. So we've that those little green shoots of hope there. And we've one man that was ordained last year. Uh, he's now ministering in Roscray from Croatia and uh, from Zagreb. And uh, he came over 20 years ago, emigrated at a difficult times there uh, studied for the priesthood and uh, he's ordained and he's doing mighty work in very him. good very good um, and while we're on the topic um, can I ask you about the, the celibacy law and of course the celibacy law is you know priests give a lifelong commitment to not getting married and uh, not, and not all that um, and I, I came across uh, in a recent article a recent article uh, from Father Duffy, parish priest of Cabinteely, I think that's in uh, Dublin, and he quoted, ultimately the church has to face reality. They have to look at issues of ordaining women of married clergy. So what do you agree with what he has to say there? Well, I suppose going back to the, the ideal that is there in terms of celibacy, you're basing your example on, on what Jesus did, that he, he lived on this earth for 33 years, He'd have been at home for a certain amount of time, experiencing family life and so on, and then went into his ministry. And he did it in a, in an absolutely dedicated, singular way where he himself didn't get married, didn't have, I suppose, the ties of family so that he could preach the good news and, and get around. And he'd have chosen 12, I suppose, part of the culture at the time. It was men and not, not women as well. And uh, I suppose what he'd have done then would have gathered a band of followers that were single and they were utterly dedicated to what they did. And I suppose following that ideal then, uh, you had the notion that a priest should be single and that they would um, give themselves 100% and wouldn't have, uh, you know, the, so many advantages to family, but wouldn't have the ties of family uh, being there. Uh, and that's that was the ideal that was there. Now, some people think and believe that if uh, priests were allowed to marry, that you'd have more uh, that would be interested. That may be the case. Um, it's interesting when you look at Church of Ireland, they they do permit uh, their priests to be married and they have women priests. And uh, has, it be, has it been successful there? Do you know? I mean, are they still quite short of priests despite it? Well, they, they are. They are indeed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and they have even women bishops in, in some uh, parts of the Anglican Church as well. And, you know, vocations are knocking down the door then in, in Church of Ireland. It's uh, they're, I suppose, struggling even more than, than we are. So it's hard to know. I really don't know, honestly. Uh, that has been the tradition for several centuries. And, uh, 
it creates its own challenges, um, but also it, it leads to a great uh, freedom that is there. I know from from my own point of view, uh, the fact that you um, are free and available, you can be part of every family. Uh, whereas if you had, if you were married, if you had four or five kids uh, and you were trying to provide for them and all of the different challenges that were there, your focus would be divided. It wouldn't be 100% on it. Um, so it's it's uh, something that is, is debated hotly and uh, it has been the tradition of the church. I don't know, honestly, if it'll change, but uh, the, the status quo remains anyway at, at the moment. Yeah, it? yeah, because on, on that as well, I mean, because of the shortage of priests in our country, I mean, funerals is another issue. Uh, because of the huge demand, it has meant that once again, due to the shortage of priests in dioceses across the country, funerals would have to be postponed until a priest is available. And for families in particular of the deceased, it's it's a it's a it's an awful time for them. So to have to go through that is, is awful again. Sure, um, I remember doing a bit of research on on uh, an interesting part of Irish history in the eighteen hundreds on the Mam Trasna murders back in Connemara, and in in reading about that and the books that were written at at, at the time, it was clear and it was evident that uh, funerals were not widespread in the celebration because they didn't have that many priests at the time. And all of the people that were killed in the Mamtrast murders were just buried without funeral masses because back in the remote part of Connemara, they wouldn't have the availability of priests. So that has been part of our tradition in the past. And I know in a pastoral letter that uh, the Bishop of Down and Connor uh, wrote, um, he's also Bishop of Derry, he's minding Down and Connor now, he said that we're very moving very close to that time where, you know, the way is in, in a lot of urban parishes, if you have several for baptism, you can do them all together. We may be moving towards the time where you might have to have concelebrated funerals where you might have three or four burials in, in the okay, one. Okay, right, okay. Already you can hear it quite often on, on Clare FM with the death notices that uh, uh, people might be going straight to the crematorium and there'll be prayers there. Um, that isn't mainly due to a shortage of clergy, but it just they're opting in that direction. But certainly that, that would be down the line. Uh, I can see that coming quite fast. And, and part of the pastoral minister um, approach is that they can say the prayers at graveside uh, you wanted the funeral mass, but you'll have the prayers there, prayers in the house and all of that. And that's a huge consolation to people. And is it now time for more of the clergy who have not yet done so to accept radical change needs needs to happen very fast? Well, oh, absolutely. We've been all the time over the last few years looking at how we need to adapt uh, while at the same time maintaining uh, the, the, the central thing that, you know, the, the phrase that you can throw out the baby with the bath water, you have to be able to adapt because you, you hold on to your core basic principles. But we've been all the time since I came to Killaloo looking at how do we change, how do we adapt, how do we move to a different structure in terms of pastoral areas moving from clusters. Uh, even this year we had um, 17 meetings in pastoral areas looking at should we amalgamate all the parishes and simplify the structures there. We feel that maybe eventually we'll have to do that, uh, but um, we need to take it gently. We need to, uh, uh, you know, explore. And what, uh, would, what would that do for the priest? Would it help him in, as an advantage, would it? It, it would. It would simplify a structure. We'll say if you take Inish Kaltra, 
there are six, seven parishes in, in that uh, area. And the proposal, the radical proposal, is that there wouldn't be six or seven units, that it'd be one unit. So there'd be one pastoral council, and it'd simplify the work of the uh, pastoral minister or the priest, that they'd be dealing with one unit, and there'd be outreach to the various areas. Uh, okay. And it would centralise the administration and that type of thing. So uh, I suppose in any organisation, we'll say if you take on post, for example, the sad thing of post offices closing around the country. Yes, yes, yes. And that's, uh, the, the effort there is to centralise. You try and maintain the local as much as you can, and identity is so important. Like, for example, the identity here in Scarif is, is huge, and it's linked in with their hurling and with their music and their tradition and all of that. So you do try and preserve the local identity as much as possible possible but at the same time if you don't have the resources you have to be able to make the structure work and to match and you see the big problem that we have is that in the Diocese of Killaloo, most of the churches that were built in the 1800s were built at a time when people either came on horseback or they walked mass and they couldn't have travelled far. So there's 138 or so churches in the diocese, which is actually too many for for the uh, space that we have. So we end up then in some rural areas with only a handful of people available to go to mass or interested in going to mass. Uh, whereas in the urban areas you would have more of a uh, an attendance. I'm sure COVID was a factor too in that as well, wasn't it? It sure was, and and I could even name a number of areas in the pastoral area here in in East Clare that just didn't open post COVID, uh, and there wasn't any conscious decision made. But uh, there wasn't mass there, and there wouldn't have been a, enough of um, we'll say a quorum literally to to reconvene, and uh, you know with with less and less priests there. Uh, by default, some areas will. And uh, expense is another thing. When you're running any public building, you have to pay insurance, you have to pay a public liability, you have to pay electricity. And yes, the whole lot, yes. Yeah, all yeah. of that. You know about the cost of living now these days, yeah. That's it, that's yeah. it. And, and you see, they're, they're the basic things. So really, it'll be up to the local community to do that. If you take, for example, Oatfield Church, which is uh, uh, not far from here, yes. that would have closed down, but the local community got together, they rallied to get... Um, heritage grants uh, and they repurpose the church for community events and they try and attract weddings there and they've you know because of the community spirit that was there they've kept things yeah, which going is great. yeah yeah sure yeah sure. yeah so before uh, i let you go um you you've a great interest in sport uh you're you run with the Clare Crusaders, am I right in saying that? Yes, every yeah. Saturday morning there's a, a group of about 60 of us and yeah. uh, it's for a great charity. The Clare Crusaders are based in Bearfield and they're, um, they help special needs children and they have facilities there to give parents the opportunity uh, to have respite for their, their kids. And unfortunately, they have to fundraise for that sort of work. So they're all the time doing events. So about the 60 of us that train, we would do the marathon and collect money for it and various different other things like cake sales or raffles or uh, many, many different things throughout the year. So about 60 of us every Saturday morning uh, at eight o'clock sometimes. And sometimes if we were doing a long run, we'd be out at seven or half six, coming up to the marathon, even six o'clock in the morning. And we'd build up. Uh, in in June, you you're at the ten kilometer stage, and then as as the marathon gets closer, you're building up to about twenty two miles. Of course, of course, yeah. yeah. So it's great fun, um, and we really enjoy it and enjoy each other's company with it, and uh, it's a great way to keep fit, healthy body, healthy mind. And sure, it's a break away from the day job too, isn't that right? It is, it is, and yeah. I often think if you go out for a spin on the bike or you go for a run, exactly, and or a walk or whatever. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're a fresh person when you come in and you get great ideas when you're doing that. Yes, yes. The oxygen coming to the brain and it helps you look at things from a different perspective entirely. Very good. So time is upon us. Um, we'll have to get you back again. And it was great talking to you. Uh, so Bishop Finton Monaghan, thank you very much for joining us on the programme. Absolutely delighted to be with you there.